So let's start. Lord, we, we thank you for being the Lord of the harvest who goes before us. We thank you that you're already in every country, every city, every neighborhood, every street, every house before we ever show up. And we pray that you would draw us into what you're already doing. Help us to recognize where you're calling us to be your living witnesses there. Lord, we don't want to try to manufacture on our power anything. We, we want to join what you're doing and be submissive to what you're calling us to do. To find those people that you have already been preparing to hear the gospel, that person of, of peace. And uh, we, we pray that you would help us to understand better how to make disciples, uh, how to make our churches places that make disciples, and how to get the word out into the neighborhood so that people who do not know Jesus come to know Jesus and find life in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, uh, open questions. Anybody have any uh, questions or responses or things that you want to pick up on for the first few minutes before we got to jump in to stuff for today? Anything from the previous two days? All right, good. We were masterful and fully comprehensive in answering everybody's questions, so that's a good thing. Uh, I'm going to take it that way. All right, there, there, are common, there are some common objections that you run into when you talk about disciple-making movements or gospel movements or church-funding movements or whatever you want to call them. So let me just articulate some of these. And do uh, you want me to do all four and have you take all four or one at a time? Let's do one at a time. One at a time. Okay. Smart. So one of the things that you commonly hear and just consistently hear is, why are you talking about disciple-making and not church planting? If you're not planting churches then uh, you're not, not going to have anything that's going to be left behind. And you can't separate out disciple-making church planting. That's a distinction without a difference. And if all you're doing is making disciples and you're not pulling them together into churches, this is not sustainable. It's just going to be a mile wide and an inch deep, and it'll all evaporate when the sun comes out. So will DMM leave any lasting impact, and do we need churches? Yeah. Um, this was actually one of the big things that came out. When, that, when DMM first started, it was actually called CPM, Church Planning Movements. And it got pushed back, that, that name got pushed back for several reasons. One, um, for one, it got diluted down pretty quickly to where everybody called anything. If you planted three churches, it was then called a CPM. And so in an effort to kind of clarify what it is, that was thrown out there. The second thing was thrown out there was, I think there's the biblical idea is Jesus tells us to make disciples and he says he'll build his church. So what is our role and what is God's role in the design of what God's entrusted us? A practical thing is if you focus on making disciples, the church will form around it. If you focus on starting a church, you may not get disciples. Um, and so I do believe that part of the progression, so that's kind of the overtone things. Part of the progression is what does it look like, even as, as Jesus through the gospel narratives began to form, began to build disciples, began to move into that and focus just on that, and then the church formed later as the disciples were ready and prepared to go. And so church does come. It's just not what we start with. Um, we start with making disciples. We start with making spiritual communities. We start with making people around the scripture, being obedient, running after the same thing. And then we put the structure around it that would create some more... Um, identifiable, sustainable type systems, if that makes any sense. It's kind of the idea, we use the analogy a lot of times of you start with a seed. What, what's the difference between an acorn and an oak tree? Um, everything and nothing, all at the same time, right? It has the exact same DNA, but they are two totally different things. And so for the acorn to get to the oak tree, you have to give it time. You have to understand that we need a ton of acorns, and then just a few of those will actually grow into oak trees. Um, but we trust that the acorn and the oak tree have the same DNA. So we want to plant the DNA out there and let the form come later. All right. 
So it is, in one sense, it is true to say making a distinction between disciple making and church planting is a distinction without a difference. That's true. But it really makes a difference what you are going after. Are you trying to build an institution and then hope that it will disciple people? Or are you trying to make disciples? And anytime you make a disciple, you make something communal because you cannot be a disciple by yourself. So community is just essential. It's essential in the nature of God. So disciples always are formed in community, and that's why you're doing Bible study in community, but the, 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 the church grows up around the disciples. And, and I don't want to miss what Caleb said. Make sure you catch that. You can plant churches that don't make disciples, but you can't make disciples that don't form churches. And, and that's a huge thing once you grab hold of it. All right, uh, what about the issue of, can you put DMM into an existing church? You know, it's not structured that way. Can you retrofit, or do you run two models at once? How does that work? Oh, this is probably the more complicated of all the questions. Um, the answer is yes and no, and it really depends on your leadership, your patience, and your willingness to develop the culture of this. One of the things that we're really putting in is, again, if we see DMM as a methodology, as a system, as just a practice that we're putting, we buy into this kind of um, program, it won't work. Uh, it really is a philosophy and a culture that we're building into people of how Christianity works. So one of the things of how we talk about, can you just put this in an existing church, it, it'll struggle a little bit because now we have this dual identity. So some of it is you can lead people into understanding a disciple-making base, a disciple-making understanding. Or, and what we encourage more so, is what's it look like to get the people that are excited, that are, man, these are evangelists, that's how they're doing and kind of put a small group together that you're working and training and working with and developing and discipling them to go out and see some of this replicate. So you actually are kind of saying two very different things. Um, one, there's a book out there kind of talking about hybrid churches where you can do more traditional model and then this DMM model. Well, the problem is it's not a complete hybrid because hybrids actually work together. And what we've seen is the DMM and existing churches usually can run parallel, but they don't run real well together if that makes any sense. So. so what you're saying is some people within the existing model of church may go out and do DMM, yeah. may find life and support and nurturing within their existing church, but the DMM is happening alongside of and not necessarily completely within. Yeah. I have, I have story after story of a ton of leaders that said, man, I love this, we're going to switch our church over, and the church is really, because they didn't disciple and lead their people into what this is. They didn't take the time. I have some really solid churches down in Houston that took three years discipling through their preaching, through their small groups, through their all kinds of stuff, and now they're ready to go. So so one of the things that probably will be guaranteed not to work is to say, you know, i got a church of 500 people, and we're going to run them all through a discipling class over the next 12 weeks, and we're going to teach them all how to do discovery Bible study and then we're just going to transition everything, and everybody's going to go over to a DMM model. We can promise you that will not work. Um, we got we got we got data uh, to indicate that. Uh, that doesn't mean that over a period of time you can't begin to do something on a smaller nature. But discipling starts from the bottom up; it doesn't start from the top down. And when you try to do it mass training from the top down, Jojo, Janet, come on, do a couple of scenes right over here, a couple Sorry. over here. Jojo and Janet Ramos from the Philippines, Baguio, good friends. Everybody pay attention to them, they feel very conspicuous right now. Filipino, uh, friends, and we love them very much. So, um, 
Anyway, uh, so you know, it, 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 you're, you're talking about pouring into a few over a period of time and then something grow on scale. You cannot mass produce disciples; they are handcrafted. So, so Dan, I, I know you're you're hurrying, but when you talk about that, the first thing that comes to mind is Rick Warren's saddleback model. I, That's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, because when, when, that would have been like the last thing that would come to mind. No, when you talk about retrofitting, to me that's what he has done with yeah. with these three bases. And I have not, I've yet to really see that work genuinely in well, established churches. Whether it's, whether it's Rick Warren or anybody else, once you create a entity, whether it's a, a, an individual family or whether it's a church or whether it's a federal government in a nation state, once you have a group going, it has a DNA. Changing that DNA is incredibly difficult. If you want something different, you need to start something different. The existing thing can help support it, but it probably cannot become that. And if you try to make it, you're going to suffer some real loss. So it, it is a long, long game to shift the existing DNA. And if you wait to do that, you're in trouble. So that's why you want. We need churches that plant churches that will outlive and outproduce them. And that's their contribution to the kingdom. But that's a whole other conversation. All right. Now, this is the one that's really important to me. I love preaching, and I love to preach. And, man, I love a good sermon. And I've seen sermons really impact people's life. I mean, what Sarah Barton did last night was phenomenal. We've heard some fabulous preaching. And, and everything you're talking about is discovery and facilitation, and the leaders are not teaching, they're leading through discovery. So what do we do with the preaching gift? Does it just go away? We build whole churches on preaching and pulpits and trained preaching. So what do we do with that? It's hard for us to imagine a church without a big pulpit. I, I long for the day that I do a training that that question isn't asked every single time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to answer it philosophically and then practically. Philosophically, one of the things that I think has helped me a lot is what is the purpose of preaching? And the idea should be actually more about the hearer and the listener and not about my gifts and my ability. And so when it shifts to say, how do people need to hear? How do people need to learn? How do people need to, you know, when, when that it becomes primary and then what do I need to do to do it, that changes things. So now it's not, I've got this gift of preaching, how do I do it? It's more, what do they need? And then how do I do it? So that's a philosophical thing. Practically, though, I will say preaching still has a really important role inside the church with believers. Um, there, there is an absolute, when you look at how Jesus preached and when he went about stuff, he may have thrown some things out there, but when he engaged lostness, it wasn't from the pulpit. So it wasn't from a big area. It wasn't from a big arena. He engaged lostness one-on-one and in groups and seeing um, different things that he was doing out and through the community. That's when he engaged lostness more than anything. So I would say the preaching and teaching of God's word is essential inside the church um, to equip believers for the work of ministry, not necessarily to try to compel the lost into what it is. And, and that's, that's something that we have not done well with. But if you look at the Bible of Jesus, he did do public teaching and preaching. He just didn't expect it to accomplish a whole lot. Meaning that the real intense stuff was the parables and the teaching he was doing after the big events with the few. And he left crowds constantly to focus on the few. And what did you hear? What are people saying? He used questions. He used stories. He was teasing things out. But it wasn't the crowds. It was the few who made the difference in the world. But there is a place for the preaching, but within a larger larger uh, ecosystem. All right, so here's where I'm going to 
really toss up the big softball and let you hit it out and talk for a while. Let's talk. What can churches, the folks that are sitting here, they're going back to their churches, what can they use, pick up and use from DMM in their current context? So let me toss it off to you and then you go off on that. Um, so I really do want today, I'm going to talk a little bit and then we'll open it up for a lot of questions since this is the last day. Um, the first thing I'm going to do is just subtle shifts that I think you could do and make inside of um, yourself, your leadership teams, elder teams, however it is. And then we'll talk about just some do-it-yourself kind of tips. Hey, when I go home, what could I start tomorrow type of thing. So the first four shifts, one of it would be shift what you measure. Um, you get what you measure. You, you will end up getting what you measure. So if you're measuring attendance, if you're measuring budgets, if you're measuring baptisms, if you're measuring all of that stuff, that's what your whole structure will be after. If you're measuring disciples, you're re measuring relationships, you're measuring um, what we would call generational growth, which kind of comes from the Second Timothy 2.2 idea where Paul tells Timothy to care about the faithful men, to care about the others, that idea that there's four generations of growth. When you measure those type of things, it will change what you do. So I would encourage you as a leadership team, yourself, what do I value and what do I measure? Because what you measure will determine um, how you do. I shared this story yesterday about just kind of in golf, if you don't know what you're trying to hit, you will hit the wrong thing every single time. Um, you know, how many times, as bad as my golf game is, I would step up to the pen, uh, step up to the tee, that was the problem. Um, I'd step <laughs> up to the tee, and I'd sit there and go, okay, that's where we're going, and the guy would go, no, that's hole 17, we're on two. Um, and it's like, I'm glad I asked, right? Because if I'm shooting for the wrong thing, I'm gonna hit the wrong thing every single time. And so clarify, shift what you measure, know what you are measuring. Um, the other thing I would say in this, a lot of times we measure, this is a side note in this, a lot of times we measure what God does instead of what we're responsible for. If we believe God is the one who saves people, God is the one who leads people to baptism, God is the one who does transformation, what is our role? Our role is to have, build relationships, our role is discipling, our role is prayer. So if we start measuring those things that we're responsible for instead of measuring what God's responsible for, it changes how we function. Second thing, shift from trying, and we talked about this yesterday, shift from trying to make a gospel transaction to building relationships. So um, in, in all the trainings, we talk about this idea of where, and I was a preacher in a church, and I would say, okay, everybody, I want you to go out and share the gospel with five people. Who in here has heard that? We heard, go share the gospel with five people. Go share. So now you now you got a mission, right? Whether people want to hear it or not, um, you've got a mission. So, and, and if you agreed to it, and I was in churches that they'd say, does everybody promise? Yes, I promise. Well, now it's Saturday night. It's about 8 o'clock, and I haven't hit any of my five. And so I've got to go to Starbucks and just find five people and quickly get this transaction done with instead of, what does it look like to engage and build relationships and know it's going to take a while and know it's going to, um, it, it's, a, it's a different way to go about it. Third thing is shift from trying to win many to investing in a few for a long time. So we go back to Jesus where he didn't try to win. Yes, he had the crowds of 5,000 and he had the crowds of 3,000 and he had the, I mean, he had all that. He didn't focus on that. The majority of his time was spent discipling the 12 and discipling even more in detail the three. He focused on a few because he knew what it could move into. He knew if he could multiply himself, 
he would have a greater impact. And there's that weird where it says you will have great, you will do greater things than me, right? Why? Because he's multiplying himself into more people. And so the idea is how do you invest in a few in order to um, win the many for a long time? The last one, shift from being, bringing people to church to helping them become church. And that's kind of what we talked about. Instead of just trying to get people into your church, what's it look like to disciple them and they become church? They become people committed to the scriptures, people committed to the Lord, people following Jesus. And so not just trying to add into it, but helping them become informing. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So I'll stop right there with those four subtle shifts. Does anybody have any questions on that? Any Could you thoughts? restate the second one? Yeah, shift from trying to make a gospel transaction to building a relationship. Can you explain what you mean by a gospel transaction? Yeah. I mean, I just, I'm not clear on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't try to just get people converted and baptized. Mm-hmm. We're actually trying to get them to follow Jesus. We're trying to get them holistically to run after, follow Jesus, transform their lives um, more than just get them baptized. The, the way my son says this, he does DMM in the Bronx with immigrants. So the way my son says this is if you only know how to have one kind of conversation, you can only have one conversation. If you've got this pat gospel presentation, you do. Once you've said that, you don't have anything to talk about. And he talks about building a gospel mosaic and sharing a series of stories over a period of time that, that builds people an understanding of the kingdom and gospel. And you need to have multiple ways of having gospel conversations with lots of stories and images. And it's a series of conversations that piece by piece you build a picture of Jesus. But we tell people, we want people to be prepared in 10 minutes to tell the gospel. Okay, well, you said it, it didn't work. What do you do? Well, you move on. Go find another. The relationship's not ready for this. Well, and let me share, I'll give even more, two kind of illustrations of that. One is, there was a time that I shared, you know, trying to share the gospel with this one lady, and I started sharing about a father who loves you, and came down, and it dwelled among you, and all this kind of stuff, and she just starts bawling, because she was like, men don't do that. My father raped me, my father did this. So trying to talk about a loving father meant nothing to her. It, it did not serve her at all. Um, it hurt the gospel more than it helped because I didn't listen to her. Where are you at? What's going on? She couldn't relate. Um, the second thing is I was just in India and we asked a guy who has a Hindu background, now he's a believer, said, Why, how is the gospel good news to a Hindu? And, you know, is it the idea that the Father, God came down, dwelled among us, was in flesh, and he goes, no, all of our gods do that in Hindu. What means the world to us is that there's actually love, affection, grace, mm-hmm. and this whole concept of Christian morality, that your yes means yes and your no means no. Okay, now the gospel, now I know how to engage them, but I had to learn that first. So, wow. Yeah, my question is in the area of building relationships. Um, so do you start with people we know, our family, strangers? Yes. Talk a little bit about this. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think I'll have, clearly the people you know are easier in terms of just having those initial conversations. I mean, we can get into introvert versus extrovert, all of those kind of things. Who do you naturally hang out with? Um, I, you know, I tell everybody that I'm an outgoing introvert, which means I'll talk to you, I just don't want to. Um, and so typically, typically it has to do with what do you normally go to. And so if it's normal for you, it's normal for them. 
if it's awkward for you, it's awkward for them. And so we usually go, what circles do you feel normal in? And then after a while, that muscle will grow and that muscle will develop and you'll get better. So if you're, if you're good at just going and talking to strangers, go do it. If that's an awkward thing for you, it's going to be awkward for them and then the gospel's going to come off awkward and all of those things. So find the people around you that you can naturally have conversations with pretty easily. And then after you build that muscle, it'll become way easier. So, so Caleb, I, I feel really embarrassed. This is a dumb question. I've spent 30 years in the ministry. I know how to measure a budget. I know how to bud I know how to measure attendance. I'm pretty good at all that stuff. You tell me to measure relationships. I don't have a clue what you're talking about. How how do you how can I go to the board and say, well, this is our measurement for relationships, whereas I can point to the back of the church and say, okay, we had 70 on Sunday. So we use a kind of a rubric called casual meaningful sorry about my handwriting I grew up in the typewriting world or the typing world I never took a handwriting class ever um, and when I misspell them they get underlined and fix themselves <laughs> so one of the things that we coach on and talk about is this progression of natural relation of natural conversations natural relationships where it's casual meaningful, spiritual, right? Casual, meaningful, spiritual. So what I do when I coach people is say, how many casual conversations have you had this week? How many people have you just said, hey, how are you? How's the weather? How's it? Anybody can have that. And nobody's offended by that, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody gets mad at you for saying, hey, how are you doing? Hey, that, how dare you? You know, nobody, it's okay. It's fine. But after a while, you want to move those into a meaningful relationship where they start opening up maybe about their kids, their finances, their jobs, their family, their church, their whatever it is, you move them into this meaningful conversation. And after a while of meaningful, it'll begin to open up spiritual. And, and so there's a progression, there's a natural progression. And so when I coach and mentor people, I'm walking them through, where are you at with this? So you realize I have some people that this is the hardest thing in the world. They just don't know how to do this. And so we coach and we work with them. How do you have casual conversations? Meaningful conversations. How do we move that into depth? How do you move that? How do you lead people into conversations that, that's interesting on that, right? And then how do you move into spiritual? I used this analogy one of the days this week. It, it's that whole idea of in your home, when people come up, they're at the front door, right? They're just on the porch hanging out. And if I don't really know you, that's where I keep you, right? I don't say, come on in. I've never met you, but come on in. I'm not inviting them on down here because that's weird, awkward, and they're not ready yet. But I may bring them in if I know them a little bit. My neighbors next door, I kind of know, they'll come in and they'll sit in my living room. I've invited them a little bit deeper into my world. My life. I'm not bringing them into my bedroom yet and sitting on the bed and going, hey, let's talk. That's weird. That's awkward, you know. But when they're ready for this, I don't have this conversation out on the porch. Because that's more deep. That's more intimate. That's more personal. They're ready to have a deeper conversation. And so... That's what I was like. You can figure out how, how do we just lead through something and clarify what are the stages that people let you in their life. Does that help? It helps much. Or at least some elements of meaningful conversation. Elements of meaningful conversation. A lot of it will be just about personal. your finances. Go ahead. Yeah, personal things yeah. about what we do. We ask them. Usually, casual conversation. What we do is we observe the people and find out things that we can have conversation with. Then meaningful, it comes into a personal conversation we're in. Sometimes we talk about, you know, our lives, and then he talks about his lives, and 
becomes personal. Yeah, so casual really is anything. Local sports teams, local weather, local I mean, personal. Anything at all that people just don't. You can talk about it, you can probably pull up on the news. Kind of think about this. If you can pull it up on the internet, it's probably casual, right? Meaningful something that you would have done, I would have to reveal to you. And spiritual ends up being purpose. And don't always move into spiritual meaning gospel conversation. Spiritual is purpose of life, yeah. depth of pain, um, reason for living, reason for being, any of those things kind of fall into spiritual. Any other questions? One, one way that uh, one of my elders from Mary said this is we need to not just count people, we need to weigh them. Um, and, and have a kind of a rubric for that. You know, where are we in this relationship? And, and move people to a series of levels. Um, because if you, you know, counting people tells you something. You just, uh, you just don't know how much it counts. Unless you have some way of weighing where the relationship is. So uh, <clears throat> what about the resistance of Christianity when the only exposure they have is the TV evangelist that wants money? You know, I mean, do you run into that? or? Oh yeah, um, not not. I don't run into that as much, but there are other that they just already have pushbacks on. But that's why a lot of times don't push them into a meeting if they're not ready. They're going to lead into this. They'll open up things. Yeah. So I'll uh, use a springboard. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So and I'll use an illustration really quickly, and then we'll move on. So I was working out at a gym. This. Me and this one guy, it's been a while, as you can see. Um, but me and this one guy, we were working out. He walked in. We both kind of looked at each other. We could, and um, I said, dude, you look tired. And he said, yeah, I just flew in from China just yesterday, got in. I'm exhausted. I said, oh, my. And we kind of had the similar stories of just flights and being. So why don't we work out together? So we started working out together. And he said, I said, what do you do? He's a financial analyst. He goes, what do you do? And I said, mine's weird. Um, and he said, try me. And so I said, well, I do three things. I do city renewal, I do training and partnerships, and I help people discover God. And I worded it that way because nobody gets mad at you for that, right? If you're, if you're a preacher, if you tell people that, you either get a stage five clinger or a runner. And so if, if you just, either they start confessing everything. I'm sorry, just last night. Um, and you're like, oh my gosh. So I do that because when I say I do city renewal, nobody's mad at you. Everybody's okay with that. Unbelievers, lost people, they're okay. So they'll go, well, what do you mean by that? And if they care, they'll lead into this. Tell me what city renewal is. Tell me what those things. So we talk about using Colossians 4, 6, having salty speech that pulls people more into yeah. your conversations. That they, I'm intrigued by you. What else do you do? So long story short, um, when I got down to, and I helped people discover God, he goes, what do you mean by that? And I said, I just realized people have questions about God. And I open up space for people to ask questions. He said, like, what? Well, I, I turned it around and I said, what kind, of, what kind of questions do you have? And he said, well, um, why did God kill my brother? So now I realize pretty quickly that's his pain point. That, that's what he's, so it doesn't matter. All the other stuff he's heard, so when he thinks God killed his brother, but he sees a TV evangelist, TV evangelist isn't the problem. It's his pain point that's the problem. And so if you can't get to the pain point, the TV evangelist doesn't matter. It's just an excuse for all of them. I'm just be honest. And so get to the pain point, and then you can figure out. But that's in everything. That's in sales, right? You answer people's concerns. They're a salesman. They're, they're a sale for life kind of a thing. It's the idea of getting to people's pain points and then speaking into that. So. Well, I was going to say, uh, one of the things that I, I think about is having a, just a, a wealth of knowledge from the scripture to use. 
I mean, I remember growing up, you know, we, again, we had that salvation with the baptism kind of measurement. They had that blue card that, you know, mm -hmm. if I had in their, their Bible and stuff, they had the list of verses everybody needs to know. But that doesn't communicate in very many situations. No. So to have a real intricate knowledge of Scripture that you can go to a lot of different places to deal with a lot of different personal issues is absolutely key. Have you ever, one of the most frustrating things in the world right now is automated um, phone services that you call, and it's like, hi, you have reached, and you're like, zero, zero, agent, 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 human being, like you're just screaming in it, right? And they're just going, sorry, did not understand, did you? And I feel like that's what most of the lost world, when we just throw things out, and it's like, you're not going, you're not on script. And so it's frustrating when we just, instead of, not only do I have a wealth of knowledge of scripture, I also have a wealth of knowledge of who they are, and I can pull the two together. So having one side of information is not communication. It's just information. Communication is understanding what the other side needs to hear and combining it together. In other words, you evangelize with your ears before you evangelize with your mouth. Any other question? Part of a huge training when we first talk about engaging lostness, if you went through one of our DMM, is learning to listen. Because learning to listen is far more powerful than having things to say. Any other questions on that, on the subtle shifts? Some of the stuff on the DIY we tackled, so we don't have to worry about it as much. Um, okay, I'll quickly go through these so we can do more questions. Um, the first, what I would say is a DIY tip. When you get home, what could you do? First thing, and we talked about this yesterday, I would strongly encourage you on Sunday not to throw this out from the pulpit and switch your whole church so we're switching I heard this thing that's exciting we're all moving over get your pants on this is gonna be exciting kind of a thing right you, what does it look like to run after this with you or a small group of people what's it look like for you to begin to make disciples in a very very tight group What's it look like for you to lead three or four people? Jesus didn't tell the 5,000, come and follow me. He told one, two, three, going up to 12 and said, hey, come hang out with me. And he kept on running into more people. He doesn't ask Zacchaeus to come follow him. He doesn't ask the rich young ruler to come follow him. He asked his 12. I would strongly encourage you not to try to switch your whole church over to this and just invest in 12. Second thing is adapt new prayer rhythms. What's it look like? This is where you could lead your church to go and what would it look like for one to start prayer walking your neighborhood? Start prayer walking your neighborhood. Start seeing lostness. You're, and why you prayer walk is because you're asking God, show me lostness, show me something that's broken, show me people that are open, show me. And so you're looking with your eyes while you're asking God to spiritually speak to you at the same time and you're combining two things. And so I'd encourage you to prayer walk in and through your neighborhood. Um, another prayer... Well, flesh out a little bit more what a prayer walk looks like. Okay. Um, prayer walk usually for me... If it's by myself, I'll go out, um, and literally, as I start walking, it's a combination of 
pleading to God and listening and listening with your eyes and listening with what's going on. So I will have a place mapped out and I'm looking at homes, I'm looking at people, I'm looking at businesses, I'm looking at what is broken, what is different, what is outside, and I'm really listening and asking the Spirit, say something to me about that person. Say, me, say something to me about that home. And I can tell you, I've been walking a neighborhood before prayer walking where when I walked past, and I did it every day for two weeks, when I walked past this one home, I can only say that there was just something that hurt my heart. It just felt weird. And so we just started praying over that home and pleading for that home and saying, God, what's going on? Well, after one after another, I was out walking with my kid and um, the lady came out and said, hey, you're the, you're the guy with four boys, which is always encouraging to know that's how we're known around the neighborhood. <laughs> um, you're the guy with four boys. I said, yeah. Um, and she said, I said, how are you guys doing? She goes, well, it's just me right now. He's in jail. He ran off. He did da, 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 da. And it just got worse and worse. I mean, she just starts pleading. And so I said, I want you to know that I've been walking this neighborhood. And when I walk by, I can't, my, my soul hurts. And she said, mine too. And so we ended up having this conversation. And that would have never come out if there's not this prayer walking, listening, feeling, God, what are you saying? What are you doing? So you can do it in and around your church. You can do it in and around a neighborhood. You can send teams out. But the idea is how do we physically walk a neighborhood, being a presence in the neighborhood, listening and talking to God more than anything else. So what's the rest of that story? Um, we, she actually went and joined a church, a traditional church. We spoke to her. Her daughter went somewhere, and she actually ended up coming out and speaking. I said, where do you go? And she said it, and I go, why don't you go with her? And she said, I've been asking my mom for years. So, yeah, I wish it was like, and then it was DMM, and then it moved, and this whole movement. We have 7,000 churches, but that's not <laughs> So, any other questions on prayer walking? It, it can happen all different ways. Do, it, do what works for you. Um, I've seen groups of people do it. I've seen people walk with scriptures, and they're prayer walking. Um, Luke 15, prodigal son, God, show me older brother, show me younger brother, show me different things. I mean, there's different ways you can do it. But I would say the biggest thing is just how do you stop and listen and engage. Um, second thing I would say, lead a monthly prayer gathering at your home. What's it look like to say 7 to 8 on Sunday night? We invite 10 people to our home, and it's very intentional to say we are praying for X. And they just pray, you just pray together. And you're making this a monthly rhythm and building into what it looks like. Who comes to those? non-Christians, people part of your church, or both? Or? For these, usually it's almost always believers. Um, people that are part of my church or community or multiple churches that I'm connected with or whatever it is. I just invite people that I know. They love our community and they want to pray. Third, um, start a prayer journal of people you're praying for and interacting with. Um, one of the things that I did when I, so I was really bad at prayer. I think I started this yesterday. When I say bad at prayer, I mean I, two, three minutes a day max. Um, kind of thing. One of the things I did was write it down and just kind of listed 1 through 30. So, And then I put names of people next to them. And what it was was on January 1st, January 2nd, 3rd, whatever name that was, I texted this person, how can I pray for you? And they responded back, told me how I could pray for them, and began just to pray. What I realized is we usually become big beggars of prayer, and we aren't people who just pray for people. And so I have this, so then in February I say, hey, did God answer this prayer? And there's nothing that will invigorate prayer more than when you start seeing God answer prayers. So this is kind of a prayer journal, prayer calendar. 
that I would encourage. And you can do different things. I've had people say, that would kill my soul. So they only do seven, and then Monday they pray for somebody, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then the next Monday. And when you can build this in, you can get your team to do it. We have whole churches that have said, we're doing this. And so the entire church um, has a 30-day prayer calendar that they're all involved with. So all I'm saying, there is a bunch of different prayer things, tools, etc. out there. What I would encourage is most of the time when we talk about prayer, we either do big prayer gatherings or we do um, just prayer lists of stuff. Find ways that invigorates and moves your soul. There's a book called Sacred Pathways that meant a whole lot to me just because it said typically the church um, pushes on two ways we connect to God. And there's actually nine through scripture. And some of it's like aesthetics and nature and music. And, and it's all these different ways that God's pleading for our soul to get in. But move those into prayer. What's it look like to figure out what do I naturally talk to God with? And how does that, how does that in life? What's the name of the book? Sacred Pathways. Um, that's not a DMM book. It was just one that spoke to me in that way. So, um, The third thing. DIY tips, and this is kind of what we talked about here. Make new friends. Most of us are in bubbles. It's just the bottom line. We have our set of friends. They're almost all Christians. They're almost all in our kind of where we know. What does it look like for you to step out and make new friends? Why typically missionaries are effective is because they have to make new friends. Um, in fact, one of the things, and I'll just say, one of the things that we've realized with sending missionary teams is a lot of times we try to see it in teams of, you know, three couples, four couples, five couples, so it's anywhere. And typically, so a new couple goes and moves in with them, well, who comes and helps them move into the neighborhood? They're other friends, right? We've sent teams of one or two or three, and they're smaller. When they go into the neighborhood, we have to get to know the locals. The locals are the ones that have to help us, right? I would say, what does it look like to create around you those kind of things. Um, how do I engage lost people more? How do I make more friends? And that may be find places where you can meet people who don't know Jesus. I had a friend that lived in this one area where the neighbors above her were Indian. They always smelled Indian food, loved Indian food, went up there and just said, hey, will you teach me how to make Indian food? And she said, I will as long as you teach me how to make American food. And she was like, hot dogs are easy. We got it. And so... Um, <laughs> But it's just that concept of now they've built a reason to hang out together. They've built some kind of make new friends. Just find a way to make new friends. Invest time and presence in a place and a people. Um, Can you say that again? Find time. Invest time. Invest time. Invest time and presence in a place. Yeah, invest time and presence in a place and a people. So find where people hang out. Find where people do life. Find where people are consistent. I mean, one of the things that we've realized is typically if you can find, like, independent coffee shops, people are more consistent than if you go to Starbucks. We just realized people go in, grab Starbucks, and leave. But if I can find there's a place called Roots in DFW, that's more consistent with the same people there over and over and over and over again. And so find those kind of places because it creates better relational fabric. Um, the next one was actually this that I was going to say is learn to have natural conversations um, so this is one of the things, the tools that I would say DIY, what's it look like to start using this rubric in your own life how many casual conversations, how many meaningful conversations, 
So I use an illustration. There's a friend of mine. He's a in construction sales, and he has like, it was it was actually funny because he was like, man, I have conversations all week long with tons of people, and I can never disciple anyone. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a notepad in your truck, and every time you have a conversation that's a transactional conversation, basically it's just give me this, I'll give you this, kind of a thing like that. Um, Hi, how are you doing? Anything that's just normally transactional, I want you to write a mark down. And at the end of the week, he came back, we were meeting for coffee, and he said, so here's my sheet. And he had 700 transactional conversations that week and four meaningful conversations. And I was like, so tell me about these four meaningful. He was like, well, they were all with my wife. Um, and so I said, well, so two things we're going to talk about. One, why did you only have four meaningful conversations with your wife? But the second one is, that's not why we're here. The bigger thing is, why aren't we getting to that? And he was like, I don't know. I just moved quickly. I did, you know. And so I said, well, let's take one thing. He went to Starbucks twice a day, um, before his first and then after lunch, like before, before he started his day and then. One of the things I said, you go to the same one. What if you go in, park, go in, get to know a barista's name. Just get to know their name. And then when you go back in, go, hey, is Matt here? Is Shelly here? Is whatever? And then just start having a conversation. And within less than a week, he texted me and said, Caleb, I started a group. Because people just want to be known. They just want to know that you engage and you care. In a transactional world, anybody that's willing to invest is powerful. So learn how to do this well and the best way to do this well is to mess up a lot <laughs> right push it start moving in a meaningful and go God, I, I probably rushed that right the guy came to my house and I immediately took him into like you know hey come on in oh that was too quick and so what does it look like to slow down invest in people um, the last thing is disciple with discovery, and this is one of the things. So this goes back to where is church versus where is disciple with discovery. I will define discovery as empowering people to own their learning journey. Discovery is empowering people to own their learning journey. So what I mean by that is how do we, we talked about this with my, sometime this week, talked about this with my kiddos, right? When they ask me, hey, how do you spell, and they throw out a word. I can either spell that word or I can help them learn how to spell that word. Mm -hmm. And so that is the whole idea of discovery. And that's what you have over here on this board is what we talk about with our discovery Bible study. This is a tool that we'll get out to you guys. But there's connect questions, Bible study questions, and accountability questions. I'm only going to focus on this right now because of time. But the Bible study thing is we say read the text. And we'll tell you to read it out loud three to four times. Read it out loud three to four times because we want you to hear God's word more than we want to hear your thoughts on God's word. So read the passage three to four times. And the middle one is put it in your own words. If you can't take a text and put it in your own words, if you can't take it, then you don't understand it, right? I have this with my kids all the time, that they have a joke that they come up with. And they want to just tell it, but they don't get the joke. So it's either offensive or not funny. Um, and sometimes both, um, which then is funny. But it's kind of this whole idea that if you can't put it in your own words, you don't get it. You don't understand it. And we have just become these almost just conduits of Scripture instead of understanding it and then being able to tell people what it is, what it means. And so put it in your own words. And what I would say by that is if I asked you to tell me about a movie, if you were telling me about a movie, then you wouldn't say what started with a dark screen. 
And then, the, you know, you wouldn't start that way. You would just tell me in a minute what a 120-minute movie was. That's the whole idea. So can you take the big idea and shrink it down? The third one is, if this is true or because this is true, what would you change in your life? What is an I will statement that because of this, this would change in my life? So that's what we talk about, leading people through their discovery. I'm not bringing information in. I'm not teaching them. I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to shift and move and cultivate things in them through the text. So that's a tool. Um, take it, leave it. Tools don't matter as much as the idea of what does it look like to help people discover where they own their learning journey. So that's quickly um, some DIY tips that you could get started on. Um, we'll do about three or four minutes of questions if you have any. So on the internet, where could you go for this Bible discovery Bible study? Just that kind of. More than likely, if you Google Discovery Bible Study, the questions will come up. Okay. Um, I, that would be my guess on a lot of that. I'm, is there a certain place you know of that? Or if you'll just go to uh, our website, mrnet.org, uh, you can contact us there. We'll send you some stuff. Or you can email Caleb, caleb.sutherland at mrnet.org, or email dan.bouchelle at mrnet.org. We'll be happy to send you materials. Can listen to Seth's blog and get a pretty good overview. Yeah, uh, our, my, my son has a blog that he has walked through a, a lot of this. Not, well, he's got a podcast, too. Podcast. If you want to listen to his podcast, he'll walk you through a lot of this stuff. Uh, and I'm not sure the name of his podcast. It, it downloads automatically. GCMI. The name of the podcast. If you email either. City's Missions Podcast. If you email either one of us, we'll get it. We'll get you all the stuff. You mentioned training. You do that for missionaries. Do you do that for people in this room? We do. So we do two train or we do three trainings a year usually that we call imprint three day. And it's an immersion into what are the foundational kind of building blocks to create these kind of movement environments. Um, and they're for two levels. They're for anybody that's it's the first step of people headed to the international mission field. But it's also we see leaders, preachers. Uh, mission teams that come and be a part of it as well and kind of formulate some of this. So we have one coming up in Memphis, June 27th through 29th that you could be a part of. Um, we typically do them in January, May, and September. But if you go to mrnet.org um, and events, we always have the updated things there. So besides relationship, what are some of the other things that you guys in your mission organization try to measure besides relationship? Um, that's a lot of it, but I would say it's relational with people, um, believers, are you mentoring and coaching people? That's one of the things. Engaging lostness, so are you having a relationship with lost people? And prayer, are you having a relationship with the Father? So their prayer is one of the big things that we really say, you know if you're going after it, if you're pursuing it. By the way, while we're on this, um, if you're on a missions committee or your leadership, Measure what your missionaries can do. Don't measure the results. Measure their activity. I mean, you care about the results, but you hold them accountable for what's within their capacity to do. How many conversations you're having a week? How are those conversations being managed? What's happening in your own personal prayer life? What do you, how do you manage? So that you're, you're holding them accountable for the things they do that produce growth. Only God can produce the result, but you know, they're responsible for what they do with their time. And so it's... And if you have some interest in that, we have a whole template on how you set up a, a, con a covenant relationship with your missionaries and what you measure, if that's in the site. 
All right, we're going to have to leave, but we're leaving you in good hands. And we didn't bother to ask him because he's African, so he doesn't need that. Uh, Sam Shoemaker, who is an excellent trainer in disciple-making movements, is here along with his wife, Nancy. Uh, they have a wealth of experience in this, and, and Sam is very passionate about this. So uh, you got about 15 more minutes. We're going to let Sam take any questions you may have or just riff off of things and correct things that he thinks we may, may not have gotten done uh, said well or, or, uh, or whatever. So uh, thank you all very much for your time and attention. We're going to try to catch an Uber and get to LAX in time to leave. So. <laughs> And our cards are up here if you want to grab it and shoot us any questions. Thanks, Alan. Have a safe trip. Good luck. Good luck, Will. Guys. Missions Resource Network. Yes. Those are Caleb Dots, Sutherland, and Dots. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. They did leave some of their business cards up here. Sam, not to Whoever asked, I, I gave a gentleman that was here yesterday. Um, if you go to uh, Missional Challenge and type in RX7, they have an actual uh, bookmark with all those questions on it and, and how to leave, uh, leave the whole thing. And it's color, it's, it's nice looking. I mean, carry it with you. Where do you go again? Uh, Missional Challenge. Is oh, you don't want me writing. <laughs> Somebody else write. Uh, it's uh, www backslash rx7. Okay, I want to uh, name a couple of things that they they referred to in, in the class either on Wednesday or, or yesterday. Um, and this, uh, Dan was making the point that, you know, in China, uh, during the days of Mao Zedong and all those, uh, that period of the high uh, communist era in uh, China, which is still communist, but uh, uh, the church really grew during that time. Really grew in China during that time, from three million Christians to a hundred and whatever, 180 million or so, something by, by this time. Also, um, Nancy and I have worked some in, in uh, Ethiopia. During the 1970s and early 1980s, that was a communist country for 17 years. The churches of Christ in Ethiopia grew in leaps and bounds during that time, even though they were not allowed to meet in buildings. They were they had to go out into wide open fields when they had their business meetings because they needed to know who was around, who was watching and listening to what they were saying. They really were under persecution, but the church grew in such great, great leaps and bounds during that time, just as it did in the first three centuries of the church. And it's amazing how when the church was not, uh, it was seen as, uh, a potential uh, revolution against the existing uh, powers that be in the world, that was the time when the church really grew in leaps and bounds. From, I think, some people estimate that it was about 30,000 members at the end of the first century, and by the end of the fourth century, it had grown to something like three million people during that time. 
Um, if you would like to read about this, uh, about a missionary who uh, uh, decided to do some research on why this was going on, read the book called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripken. Get it on Amazon if you want to read about that. It's just amazing what people uh, put up with in order to, I mean, they just give their lives. They give their lives for the gospel. And uh, it's very, very, very exciting what God is doing. The second book that he wrote was The Insanity of Obedience. If you want to uh, refer to those books, you can. And what's his last name? Uh, Ripken. It's uh, R-I-P-K-E-N, I think. But if you just get the title on Amazon, you'll get the, the name. Um, let's see, there's another book. Okay. The book that really shows how this is taking place in Africa and it's taking place in other parts of the world where these, um, uh, these multiplication of disciple-making groups, churches that don't meet in buildings, uh, but they meet in, in homes and uh, public places and places like that. Nancy and I were missionaries in Rwanda. We went in there having learned only the year before uh, we went in there that we should be making disciples instead of transplanting churches. Most churches, most missionaries who go, they bring potted plants, so to speak, and they plant the church that they experience back home. And it may not be the kind of a church that needs to be in that place. We've got to realize that in different cultures, people have different ways of doing things. Many societies are not like ours in the West, where we are highly individualistic. And when we go into places in the world where the most uh, societies are very communal in many respects, I don't mean communist, I mean they just do things together. They think together, they, they, they work together, and they consult one another. And uh, so I would just say a couple of things about how do you, how do you reach people. The, the main scripture we use today to think about what disciple-making movement's about is Luke chapter 10. Read Luke chapter 10. You'll notice that in, in chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12. And from, from chapter 9 to chapter 10, there's a multiplication uh, effect there. Don't think about adding people to the church. Think of multiplication. Between chapter 9 and chapter 10, uh, Jesus has sent out 12 in chapter 10, 72 in chapter, I mean, in chapter 9. In chapter 10, he sends out 72. It's multiplied by 6. These are the disciple makers that he sends out. And what are they going to be looking for when they go out there? Do you know? Someone tell me. We're looking for? People of peace. People of peace. Thank you very much. People of peace. P-O-P. These are people who God has been preparing to receive the gospel, and oftentimes these are people who are 
and he tells them, don't go from house to house. When you discover the person of peace, and you go into this home, and you find that peace is there, let your peace rest on that house. Don't go door to door to door and staying in other places. Because the person of peace that God has prepared is going to be the person who's going to have an impact in reaching the people in his community or her community. I don't think it's just a man. It could be a woman. Can you think of examples of that? Lydia. Lydia was a woman of, of, of peace. Can you think of a man of peace? Cornelius. Cornelius, yes. Cornelius, when Peter got there, he knew he was breaking the tradition of, of, the, uh, of the Jewish people to go into the house of a Greek or a, 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 a pagan in their mindset. A, uh, so he went into this home knowing, because he'd had a crash course in missiology from God on the rooftop just days before he got to, to uh, uh, was it Joppa? Where it was that uh, Cornelius lived. So he goes in there, and it is Cornelius that has brought these people together. All kinds of people, his family, his servants, some of his soldiers, and so forth. So he was the person of peace who could reach the community that he invited the outsider, Peter, and those that came with Peter to bring the gospel to those people. So think of the person of peace. Uh, I wanted to throw out, I'd like to throw out another term here, Shema. If you want to see an example of a, a Shema experience event, look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first 10 or 12 verses of, of um, Deuteronomy chapter 6. True mission begins in the homes of people. It begins in the homes of people. So read through that if you want to. And uh, if you would like to, to um, be a church that reaches out into your community to those who do not yet know Christ, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, I'm going to present this on Sunday, so I hope I'm getting this right. Uh, the uh, can you smell light? Yes. How do you perceive light? You see it. Smell it. You yes. see it, right? Can you smell it? Yes. <laughs> what what comes before thunder? The thunder of preaching. What comes before that? Lightning. And you can't, you can't hear it. You see it. And then a few seconds later, you hear the thunder that comes. So I, what I'm trying to say about this is people need to see the gospel in your life. They need to see the gospel in what you do, and what you do in the community, and what you do uh, to serve their needs. So I would recommend that we mobilize our churches to be in the community, to be out there uh, walking. If it's prayer walking, very good. I got great examples of that. 
Nancy and I were in Rwanda and, and we were looking for a place to start a ministry. We didn't have a, a house or a building in which to work. And so we did some prayer walking in the community. And we had to stop about 10 o'clock because I needed to catch a flight down to another country um, to a workshop that I was going to. to. And so um, I said, okay, you guys go ahead and go home, but just if you've got time, keep prayer walking and see if we can come up with something. I was in the airport ready to take off and I get this call from the guys I was prayer walking with and they said, we've discovered a house that looks like the kind of a place that we could, we could use as uh, our uh, Africa Transformational Network mission place. And I said, well, go and ask Nancy. She's got the first ministry that's gonna start. So please go down and talk to her and let her see the place and see if that is something that would be ideal for us. Sure enough, I said, you guys make the decision. I was you know, the, the director of the thing at the time, but I, I put it in the hands of others and said, you guys take care of it. That was the place we were at for what, four or five years that we did our, our worship, uh, I mean our uh, ministry base from. So, uh, Prayer walking is a great way to discover, as Caleb was just sharing with us a few moments ago. I've talked enough. Questions, please. So, I, I had a professor, I don't know if anybody, I am really easy with the casual conversation, but I had a professor that taught me evangelism that just really helped me. He used the acronym FROM, from the word FROM, family, religious background, occupation, you might have to change that up, and then your message. And I found that I can talk to anybody with that little from. The little from, well, I, I don't get it yet, but I hope we have a conversation, I'll get it. It's conversational. Yes. Conversational. Order. Go over it again. The starter? The yeah, starter it, it, it's the starter. It's, yeah your family, where your family from, your religious background, your occupation, and what's the message? Well, another, another example is to walk into your business, wherever you're working, or in your office, or whether you're on staff at a school, or whatever it might be, and come in with a Shema statement. You know, I was, I was praying this morning, and I, 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 I discovered something new about God. Just leave it right there. Wait till somebody who heard you say that come up to you and say, "Are you a Christian? Did you? What did you discover about God this morning? I didn't. I didn't know there was a God." Let that be a conversation starter. Something like that situation get out there where there are people who don't know Jesus in your community maybe you need to be working with Habitat for Humanity to bless somebody in your, your community with a housing situation whatever it might be mobilize your church I really believe that to become disciple makers is a real paradigm shift for our churches that's why on the, the first day we were meeting here I said, sometimes we try to pour new wine into old wineskins. Don't try to change 
people who are set in their way, think about working with the new ones who are coming to Christ that aren't set in their ways and that are open to some way of reaching that neighbor, that person down the street that they know they'd like to share the gospel with. Sorry, our time's up. Thank you. Thank you.